Hello, Rebecca Radil here. Just another one of my weekly messages to you guys. Um, firstly, to thank you for all of the amazing reviews that you've been leaving. Honestly, it's so heartwarming and encouraging. And I'm just so pleased that people are actually listening to the podcast and enjoying it. So if you can keep doing that, that would be fantastic. Also, as I've said before, we do have a Patreon account, www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. Um, do join us. There's lots of extra content there. We've got mini interviews, well, extra bits of interviews. We've got blogs and all of that kind of stuff. Um, also, yes, tell your friends, family, anyone else that likes listening to podcasts because podcasts live and die on word of mouth. So if you can shout about it and tell lots of people, then hopefully we can um, keep going for a lot longer. Um, Anyway, I've kept you for long enough. You want to listen to the content. So on with the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode 12, The Assassination of Thomas Beckett. It's the 29th of December, 1170. England is under the rule of its first Plantagenet king, Henry II, and a fierce power struggle between the church and crown has reached an impasse. Four of the king's knights thunder into Canterbury in search of the archbishop. Barging into the cathedral, they shout, Where is Thomas Beckett? Traitor to the king and kingdom. Becket, who had been in the archbishop's palace, was quickly urged to take refuge in the sanctuary of the church. It is here that the knights find him, seize him and brutally murder him. murder of Thomas Beckett is one of the most iconic deaths, in an almost literal sense, in the history of Christianity. It's a tale of betrayal, power and horrific violence. To unpack the story, I speak to Dr Emma Wells, medieval historian, programme director of parish church studies at York University and author of the forthcoming Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. Dr Emma Wells, thank you for coming on the podcast. First of all, it would be kind of useful, I think, if you could paint a picture of what life was like in England during the 12th century. Yeah, sure. So, Okay, we've had Duke William of Normandy's, you know, triumph over King Harold at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So we've got William the Conqueror marking the sort of dawning of a new era, a dawning of a Norman era in England, you know, getting rid of the Saxon kingdom. The Norman clergy were therefore dominating the church and monasteries and churches were being constructed all over England in the new Romanesque or Norman style. So along with castles, we also get the great churches, great monasteries, great cathedrals. Then obviously the church, it's a bit of a bugbear to say that the church was reaching every every aspect of life, but it, but it sort of was, you know, from birth to death, the church sort of consumed most of life. Not that everyone went to church every day, but that's another matter. The monasteries mm-hmm. were the wealthiest landowners in England, more so than the king, in fact. And then we had, you know, faith or, you know, down to the parish churches as well. It wasn't so much the age of faith that we tend to think of, but 
religion was this dominant institution taking over everything. You know, most people were living in, you know, rural society in the countryside. So that's sort of where we are 12th century England. Thomas Beckett, who was born in 1119, was a second-generation French immigrant who grew up in Cheapside, London. I'm interested to know how he fits into this mix. Well, it's a little bit complicated, but I thought it's probably wise to explain how the church was sort of put together here and therefore who he was. So, of course, we didn't have a Church of England just yet, but it was the Church of England was organised into the Archbishopric of Canterbury and of York. The Archbishop of Canterbury and York were essentially, they essentially ran the country's religion with obviously oversteer from the Pope in Rome. And Thomas Beckett, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was appointed in 1162. And then at the same time, we had Roger Plonnevec, who was Archbishop of York. And he'll come into the story a little bit later. But beneath them, we have 21 dioceses, each of them headed by a bishop. And then we have archdeaconries, deaneries, so on and so forth, down to about 9,000 churches, parish churches. Now, it's important to say that then the parish church is classed as the secular church, and then we have the monastic church, which is your monasteries, because they're controlled by, they follow a monastic rule. So, you know, most commonly the rule of St. Benedict. And it gets even a little bit more complicated, because before Henry VIII got rid of the monasteries in the 1530s, there are also monastic and secular monasteries. So Canterbury Cathedral was actually Christchurch Priory. It was a Benedictine priory, which was essentially a daughter house to its initial one in France. So again, they followed a rule. A secular cathedral, secular monasteries didn't. They were a little bit more free, but it was a monastery. It followed a rule. It was a Benedictine house. And therefore Canterbury Cathedral, as we know it, was actually the church to Christchurch Priory in Canterbury. I hope that makes sense. That does make sense, but it's a lot more complicated than I would have thought. But yes, thank you for that. What would daily life have been like for um, somebody like Thomas Beckett then in this in this setup? Well, I mean, it's pretty decent for an archbishop, you know. Let's 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 call a space. <laughs> I mean, he's got quite nice clothes, but um, for monks, essentially in a medieval monastery, which he was, you know, like any professional calling, there's ups and there's downs, and they they didn't have many possessions, although they kind of did because that's half the problem leading to the reformation archbishops certainly mm-hmm. did, but they would attend services you know the liturgical offices day and night you know you're getting up you're praying you're going back to sleep you're getting up praying going back to sleep they might have to take vows of silence chastity but you know they live in these grand buildings they have a roof over their heads you know they're well fed they're sustainable they're the first sort of sustainable communal living people really and if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have the great pieces of artwork and, you know, illuminated manuscripts that have given us invaluable records, you know. So not too bad. Not too bad. And so that's the, that's the kind of the daily, daily grind, the daily life for people in these, in these institutions. But of, of course, there was a world outside as well. And it's that world outside that leads to the conclusion, I suppose, of Thomas Beckett's life. He, he began with a friendship with Henry II. Could you tell me a little bit about their relationship? Yeah, well, Beckett was, just to point out, he was actually the son of a sort of moderately wealthy Londoner, but he was quick-witted and he was a loyal servant to the king. So as a result, King Henry II thought that when Beckett became Archbishop in 1162, that this was a good thing. His buddy, his pal, was being Archbishop. And essentially, 
the Archbishop of Canterbury is the king's second in command. You know, he is God's representative on earth by a Rome, by the Pope. His buddy's there, so great news. Unfortunately, (laughs) that wasn't quite the case. Beckett resigned his chancellorship, which sort of, you know, annoyed Henry a little bit a couple of months after he became Archbishop. And he started asserting his commitment to defending church rights and resisted a lot of Henry's objectives. Now, mainly this was to do with clerical privilege. So the king wanted to use his own force and and Beckett's indeed to um, push through a program of royal supervision of the church. And what this essentially meant was that clerics would be punished for the same crime twice. And Becky didn't really believe that clerics should be punished like laymen. He believed that the church was above the law. They answered only to God, by the Pope, but to Henry, the church should be subject to the law of the land. One thing led to another. (laughs) They fought. Becket fled to exile in France. And as a result, he left Archbishop of York, Pont-Levesque, in in command of England. And what Henry did was a little bit sly and he wanted to ensure his own succession. He wanted his eldest son, the young Henry, to be crowned. Becket didn't want this. Becket was annoyed, you know, it's only the Archbishop of Canterbury who should perform this duty, the coronation. But Henry thought, no, I'm having my way. The coronation was performed on the 14th of June, 1170, by pont at Westminster. Becket came back from exile, mm-hmm. very annoyed. And that's when Henry was annoyed at him because Becket started excommunicating pont and all those who were involved in this coronation and everyone who'd gone against him. And it was at that point that, you know, King, really annoyed, incandescent with rage, says, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their Lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric. Not that phrase that we all think of. But just to remind us, what is that phrase that we all think of at that time? Who will rid me of this turbulent or petulant priest? Right. Okay. So, so the shits hit the fan, basically, um, in their relationship. <laughs> and how does this lead, though, to Beckett's murder? You know, how, how was it initiated? Well, when Henry uttered these words over in France, his knights heard, overheard him saying this. And as a result, they went across to England and got Beckett. It's like, right, the king clearly wants him dead. They took it the wrong way, you know, really. And they go to the Archbishop's Palace at Canterbury on the 29th of December, 1170. They roll up, put all their armour aside under a mulberry tree. They sort of force their way into the palace and say, you know, where's Beckett? They find him in his privy chambers and they essentially say, look, by order of the king, you know, you're going to be, the king wants you essentially to be arrested. And Beckett was very stoic in his approach. He was essentially, you know, come at me, bro, I suppose. Um, (laughs) I'm not moving. And so they went away and then they came back again, obviously a little bit more annoyed than before. And then at this point, they hadn't found him and his monks say, look, you need to get lost. You, You need to go away. These knights are rather annoyed. They're on your tail. He goes into his church, through the cloisters, into the church, um, which we know now as Canterbury Cathedral. And mm-hmm. the monks, his monks want to lock the door. He says no. And he's essentially saying, look, I, I'm prepared to meet my fate. You know, the, the, the house of God should not be dealing with this anyway. And at that point, they, he opens the door. They burst through. And it's at that point that they bring their swords down on him. 
and essentially cut off the top of his cranium. <gasps> More than one of them flies sort of through his neck is the first time he falls down. And the next one comes along, his cranium comes off. And right at the end is the sort of coupe de grace. They brought a clerk with them called um, Hugh of Hornsey or Morclerk. He stamps his foot on Beckett's neck. And he then drives mm-hmm. his point, the point of his sword, straight through his open wound, you know, into his head. He gouges out his brains, but he hadn't finished there. No, no. He uses the heel of his boot, mashes the brains and the blood together and smears them across the pavement. And it's at that that they say, right, let us away. He's not going to get up, essentially. And he's left, Beckett's left, mangled body's left there. And his blood runs out and um, some of the townspeople come and collect his blood as a sort of holy relic. Good Lord, Emma. That's graphic. Wow. Um, As graphic as it gets. (laughs) That's horrific. One of the eyewitnesses at the scene was Edward Grimm, who was so close to the fray that he was wounded by one of the knight's swords. He noted how Beckett held tight to one of the pillars to prevent the assassins apprehending him. It was at that point that one of the knights raised his sword and the violence began. In a graphic extract, Grimm recorded how the Archbishop's crown had separated from the head so that the blood turned white from the brain and the brain equally red from the blood. So what was the impact of this? I mean, the immediate impact and the wider consequences and legacy of this murder. Well, his knights were just to, just to, you know, so everyone's aware, it's Reginald Fitzius, William de Tracy, Richard Brito, and Hugh de Morville. So they're the four main culprits. They didn't receive protection from Henry II. He did kind of hold his hands up and say, you know, this wasn't my fault, but they're going to be punished. All four were submitted to judgment by Pope Alexander III. They had to go essentially on crusade for 14 years, sort of penitential military service. They were excommunicated as well. More so, Henry II, he took control of their estates, denied inheritance to their male heirs, allowed only a portion of their inheritance to descend to female heirs, which was quite interesting. Then King Henry came to Canterbury himself in July 1174, barefoot in penance, and before his tomb, before Becket's tomb, you know, his former friend here, he was ceremonially beaten for his sins with rods of birch or elm, by all the bishops present and more than a hundred of the Christchurch monks. But, you know, in a, in a sort of silver lining to all this, Beckett's tomb started sort of sprouting miracles, if you will. Miracles were being recorded at his tomb. So essentially he was made a saint in 1173. It was one of the fastest canonizations in history, became perhaps the most important saint, particularly in England, but, you know, in Europe. I mean, 100,000 pilgrims came to worship at his tomb the year after his death. So that just shows just how important his tomb became. And because of that, you know, we get the Canterbury Tales and, you know, because of pilgrimages to his shrines. And it also, you know, Henry was painted as a bit of a brute killer, but Beckett wasn't innocent by any means in all this, both Mm -hmm. guilty of sort of mountain hubris and a thirst for power. But it also led to, you know, it threatened the stability of the Angevin Empire as Henry II's sons were now essentially annoyed at him and they were worrying about who would be next in line to the throne. Gosh, it's such such a fascinating story and um, one that you've told so well. Emma, thank you for um, giving up your time today to, um, to speak about this. Thank you. It's been so great. Thank you. 
The consequences of Thomas Becket's death were huge. It changed the fate of a city, the legacy of a king, and even the history of Christianity itself. Fifty years after his death, Becket's body was moved from the crypt to a shrine in a newly built chapel upstairs in the cathedral at Canterbury. And Canterbury became one of the most important pilgrimage destinations in Europe. But what of the knights who committed the murder? As Dr Wells has said, they were ordered by Pope Alexander III to undertake 14 years penitential military service. It's believed that they died in or near Jerusalem soon afterwards, perhaps as early as 1174.